0: Well, say good afternoon, although looking outside, it almost looks like good evening. Whichever is appropriate, we're so grateful that you're here uh, today, Uh, whether you're joining us in person or online. And if you have your Bible with you, would you open it up, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, uh, and we'll read verses 31 and 32 here in just a moment. That's Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Tonight... Uh, it's a blast from the past. We're bringing back something that I used to do with great regularity until some of the questions dried up, uh, and that's uh, question and answers. Uh, Sometimes I get questions that are submitted for a while. I had a question box where people could submit questions. Uh, But tonight I want to examine a question that I've gotten several times over the last, uh, I guess, couple of years uh, that I've answered on an individual basis. But I've gotten this question enough that I thought it might be helpful for all of us to consider and answer this question. Maybe you already know the answer, but could you express it in such a way that it would be helpful to somebody else? Opportunities sometimes arise because people know that you're a Christian, people know that you know your Bible, and so they have a question and they say, hey, you know what? I think I'll go and ask this person that I know, that's you, I'll ask them about this and they'll probably have an answer. So hopefully this will be helpful to you this evening for those reasons. But we'll also have some uh, applications that we'll make right at the end of the lesson as well. And the question that I want us to examine tonight is this. What is the quote-unquote unforgivable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? There are some in the religious world today uh, that, that fear this very idea, fear the concept that maybe there's something out there. Where if I say the wrong thing, I say the wrong words, even accidentally, that, that I'm not sure what I'm saying, or my, my heart was in the wrong place, and I say something, and because I say this thing, it is the unforgivable sin, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I will be irrevocably damned for what I've said. Uh, there are some who have that very real fear, and of course... Uh, If there is something called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that in some ways, at least on the surface, it appears we can't be forgiven for, that's probably something we should have a pretty good handle on to make sure that we are not uh, guilty of that ourselves. So let's examine that question tonight. But before we get to the actual answer, there are some elements that we're going to need to consider to uh, answer this question from a biblical standpoint. If you're there in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, this is one of three places where we see this concept expressed to one degree or another. Let's read beginning in verse 31 together. This is the way Matthew's gospel puts it. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. Read those verses, those are a couple pretty scary verses, aren't they? And we see that Jesus is is speaking to people here who already by this point have blasphemed, Earlier in this chapter, they have accused that Jesus is just casting out these demons because he is in league with Satan, because he is casting them out by the power of Beelzebub and things along those lines. And no doubt there are other ways that they've blasphemed him as well and other ways that they would blaspheme him um, in even more terrible ways. I was reading while we were partaking of the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. And, And it talks and uses that specific word in the Gospel of Mark, that they blasphemed Jesus while he was on the cross with so many of the things that they said. They were blaspheming the Son of Man. Well, what does the text say about that? Look again at verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word, blasphemy in verse 31, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. I think it's helpful to us to begin there. Does this text mean that it doesn't matter whatever we say against Jesus? Anything we say against the Son of Man, instantly it's forgiven. As soon as I say it, as soon as it leaves my lips, it's forgiven. Is that what this passage is saying? Well, if we take it at face value and say just that's what these words mean, perhaps we could come to that conclusion. But I think we're better Bible students than that. And we understand, of course, what do we still have to do in order to be forgiven of blasphemy that we might commit against the Son of Man. Uh, It's not a Bible class. You can't answer. Oh, maybe you can, but we have to repent, right? We have to repent of those things. But the point is, they could be forgiven for blasphemy against Christ if, if they did what? If they repented of the blasphemy that they spoke against him. And in the events leading up to the cross and on the cross itself, many of the Jews blaspheme Jesus repeatedly, perhaps starting with crucify him, crucify him. Even we see the religious leaders would strike him while blindfolded and ask where the hit came from. But what is it that Jesus says in Luke chapter 23 and uh, verses 32 and 34 that shows this blasphemy could be forgiven? He says, and, and this is the first thing that he says on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they are doing. Jesus' love for mankind continues to shine forth, even in death, even toward his murderers. This is why he came. And Jesus knew and and, and knows that they do not fully understand what they're doing. That's that's what he says here to the Father. And, And Paul confirms this idea that they didn't fully grasp the full significance of what they were doing, what they were saying as they were crucifying Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul and Jesus both say, if they really knew and comprehended what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. But isn't that true of most sins that we might commit, if we really knew, if we really understood what we were doing, we probably wouldn't do it. How often in your own life have you sinned against others without fully realizing what you were doing? Maybe you knew that it was wrong to one degree or another, but the full ramifications of what you were doing, that was beyond your knowledge, the pain and the hurt that it might have caused. And how much more freely could we forgive... If we realize that people often do not know what they're doing, at least not fully, but if we do know, if we understand totally what it is that we are doing, and yet still we do it anyway, that is the hardest kind of heart. That is the most difficult kind of heart to reach. The heart that says, this is wrong, I know it's wrong. I know it's sinful, I know it's against God, all those sorts of things, but I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway, and I have no plans to repent of it once I have committed the sin. That is the kind of heart that Jesus is talking about when he says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's make something clear about what Jesus says and even what Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 2. Jesus, when he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they are doing, is not asking God to change his nature and forgive the unrepentant. But what he is asking is for God's forgiveness if and when they repent. Jesus is saying, even from the cross, the day is going to come when they come to a realization of what they've done, and in that moment, Father, forgive them when they repent of those things which, by the grace and patience of God, many of them had the opportunity to do, and many of them did in Acts chapter 2. So turn there with me. Acts chapter 2, if you would. So we think about blasphemy against the Son of Man, blasphemy uh, in a number of different ways, but most, most egregiously, we might say, in the crucifixion of Jesus. But if we turn over to Acts chapter 2, many of those same Jews are still gathered in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, the Apostle Peter concludes the sermon that he's preached on this occasion, and he says, Therefore, Acts 2.36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, you need to know this, you need to know it for certain. Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, that is the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe that to be the gift that the Holy Spirit gives. He's giving them this salvation as the Holy Spirit has been central to this whole chapter and everything that's happening here as we'll talk about in more detail here in just a moment. Verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and all to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. We're getting just a little bit ahead of ourselves, uh, but... But I hate to bury the lead on this. You know, we, we ask a question. I want to give you an answer. Uh, maybe I should string you along a little bit more. I don't know. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would have been if they heard Peter's sermon and saw everything that the Holy Spirit was doing there and they understood what it was that they heard from Peter, that, that they knew assuredly that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. And they still refuse to repent in arrogance and rebellion. That, brothers and sisters, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think we see this as we think about what the Holy Spirit's purpose is, what His purpose is, especially in the first century. What was the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the first century? Well, consider two things that the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. Number one, the Holy Spirit revealed the truth. So... The primary roles, maybe there are secondary roles beyond these two, but the two primary roles, number one, is to reveal the truth. I want you to turn now to Luke chapter 12. Now this is Luke's account of the same thing that we read earlier from Matthew chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, we see just a little bit more information about what Jesus said on this occasion. And it ties to this idea that the Holy Spirit came to reveal the truth that comes from God. So Luke chapter 12, uh, let's, begin reading. let's begin reading in verse 8. Uh, 10 through 12 is the most important, but let's begin reading in verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, again, like we talked about before, if he or she repents. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Verse 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry uh, about how or what you should answer or what you should teach, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So we see this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is tied very directly to the, to the Spirit's primary role. And the Spirit's primary role was to reveal the truth fully and totally, all things that pertain to life and godliness, reveal this truth to the inspired apostles and prophets so that then they could communicate that truth to other people. And we see this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is connected by Jesus to this role of revealing the truth. Now, give me a thumbs up if you're following me so far. Okay? If not, we'll have to go back over all that again. We don't want to do that. Uh, Let's go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We fast forward to the night Jesus is to be betrayed. And as he is giving final instructions to uh, the apostles... He tells them that it is really to their benefit that he goes away because it is only after he goes that he will be able to send the helper to them. And notice what he says in verse 13 to his apostles. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you, you apostles, into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come. And he's going to glorify Christ and all those sorts of things. But notice there that he will guide these apostles into all truth. He's going to reveal what it is they need to know in order to preach the gospel message. Uh, One more passage, turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Many, many places that we could go to show that this is the role of the Holy Spirit. But notice what the Apostle Paul now says, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3. Uh, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have r- briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was made known to the sons, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And we see what this mystery was. It's the good news of the gospel, that anyone who chooses to come to Jesus can be saved, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partners of his promise in Christ through the gospel and the church and everything else that he's going to talk about here in the book of Ephesians. So the, uh, the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to the, uh, the apostles and prophets to reveal the truth. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit was sent to confirm or bear witness in signs and miracles to that truth. Just revealing it, just saying, hey, this is what is true, uh, was not the full extent of what the Spirit came to do. The Spirit also, at least before the full Word of God was completed, the Spirit also was there to confirm that these things actually were true. And it bore witness, He bore witness, And signs and miracles and speaking in tongues and all of these things that we see in the early church. Uh, The Hebrew writer speaks of this. You want to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, Uh, who being the brightness of his glory and expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, the angels who had this role in communicating to Moses the things of the old law. So let's drop down to chapter 2 in verse 1. So Jesus came, he spoke things from his Father, but then when he was exalted back to the right hand of God, he sent the Holy Spirit to complete and finish his work in revealing these things. As we read in verse 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed, this is chapter 2 and verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels that's the law of Moses, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord when Jesus was here on this earth, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the apostles and other eyewitnesses. Notice also verse 4. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. This truth that was committed, committed to the apostles and communicated to us from God was both given, revealed by the Holy Spirit, and it was also confirmed by the Holy Spirit in the things that the Holy Spirit did. And that's why the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in tongues and work miracles to confirm that what was said was actually really from God, really from the Holy Spirit. And we see that throughout the spread of the gospel in the first century before the word of God was completed in the book of Revelation. Over and over and over we see that same thing in the book of Acts that mighty wonders and signs and miracles were done to confirm what it was these apostles and prophets were coming to speak as it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. And all of that really started back there in Acts chapter 2. So go back to Acts chapter 2 one more time. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 for a few minutes, and then I'll, I'll actually give you the answer. In my judgment, what I believe the Bible teaches. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Jesus had promised he's going to send the Helper, send the Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth. We just read that a little bit ago. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. There's a bad preacher joke there about driving in an accord. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, And one sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled, these apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And what Luke does as he's writing these things down and recording them is he just goes around the points of the compass and talks about all of these different Jews who are in Jerusalem from all of these places and they see and hear these things. They, they see the tongues of fire, they hear them speaking these words in their own tongues And they're speaking the wonderful works of God as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 4. So, verse 12, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, mocking, close to blasphemy, isn't it? Mocking, said, They are full of new wine. You know, that was always confusing to me. Um, I've had the unfortunate in my life of being around a number of drunk people. And, and never at any point did I hear somebody muttering and mumbling and slurring their words, and I thought to myself, you know what, I think they're speaking Chinese. You know, I, I think that's what's going on here. What that reveals, at least in some of the people, is there's, there's a hard heart here. I mean, how can you deny what's going on? And, and, of course, there are many who are amazed and say, no, I mean, that can't be what it is. And Peter himself addresses that. Notice verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning. And while they were day drinkers then, just as there are now, it would certainly be unusual for somebody to be intoxicated at nine in the morning. But this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders and heaven above, and signs, in earth beneath, blood, and fire, and vapor, and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the Holy Spirit is doing this, as Joel prophesied. And so what does Peter do in verse 22? Men of Israel, hear these words. And as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, he speaks to them this sermon, which for all who had good hearts confirmed that Jesus really was the Christ. Verse 36. We read this a moment ago. Let's read it again. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, this sermon revealed by the Holy Spirit, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Here are the words of salvation given by and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Now, imagine for a moment that you see these things, you hear these things. Maybe you were one of the ones who was shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him. Maybe you were one of the ones who wagged your head and said, if you're the Son of God, come down off of that cross. And you realize, as it is revealed by the Holy Spirit to Peter and then to you, that you crucified the Son of God. The promised Messiah. You heard that, and you're cut to the heart, and you are told to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Or, well, you have two options. Number one, you can accept that, and you can be re- you can repent, and you can be baptized, and have your sins forgiven. A oh, glorious day, that would have been. And in verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, then those who gladly received what? His word. Peter's word from the Holy Spirit were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. What a wonderful and glorious day, if you accepted the message of the Holy Spirit. But the other option is to hear all of these things and see all of these things and in hardness of heart reject the message of the Holy Spirit. And if you did that, is there any other way to be saved? Is there any other back door by which you're going to come and receive salvation in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit? Can I hear your head rattle one way or the other? No. No. This was, and and is, in many ways, the only way. And so what then is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is this. It is not a one-time sin, necessarily, but a sinful, unrepentant attitude toward the truth from God. That you see and understand what the Holy Spirit has communicated, and you say, I'm not going to do it. What is that if not blasphemy? What is that if not speaking against the Holy Spirit who revealed those things? And so the sin against the Holy Spirit is not a case of God refusing to forgive. You know, nana nana boo boo, you said the wrong words, there's nothing you can do, you're going to hell, there's no way you can possibly repent and be forgiven. It is just the opposite. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is someone refusing to seek to be forgiven even though they see and know, because their hearts have become hardened. Now this is uh, not just the only place that this concept is found. I I want just very quickly to consider uh, a few more. Uh, If you did not get a handout um, this evening, this afternoon, I still can't decide which it is, uh, there's In the racks in the back, there are handouts, and you can have all of these scripture references. I'm happy to send you this PowerPoint or, or anything else you might, might need. But I think just to confirm that we're thinking about this in the right sort of way, let's look at a, at least one more, and then I'll put a few more up on the screen. At the very least, time permitting, we might turn to one or two more. But let's at least turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, if you'll turn over there with me, please. I've shared with you before my love for the book of 1 John that it's where I find so much confidence in my salvation and boldness and who I am in Jesus Christ. And and I love the simplicity, now that I am a Christian, and 1 John is written to Christians, of what I'm supposed to do when I sin, when I fall short. And if you begin reading with me in 1 John uh, chapter 1, uh, let's look, I've got verse 9, let's go all the way back to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. How powerful is the blood of Jesus? It can cleanse any and all sin. That's how powerful Jesus' sacrifice is. Verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, on the other hand... If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, no, but I think there's something really powerful to be found there. He says, all sin, all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, that is the paid price for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So with that context of what Jesus is able to do and does for us as Christians, if we confess and repent, I want you to turn to the end of the book, to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, And and after we've read chapter 1, I think it should be clear to us there's not some sort of worst sin where if we commit it, we can't be forgiven. Jesus' blood is powerful enough to cleanse us of all sin and all unrighteousness if, if what? If we are willing to confess and repent. Which brings us to 1 John chapter 5 beginning in verse 16. John says this to end his letter after saying all sin, all unrighteousness can be forgiven. But then he says in verse 16 of chapter 5, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. So, for the Christian, what is, in the context of 1 John and what we read in chapters 1 and 2, for the Christian, not the alien sinner, but for somebody who's in Christ, what is the sin not leading to spiritual death? So you commit a sin, but it doesn't lead to your spiritual death. You are not uh, damned eternally. You don't go to hell because of that sin. What is the sin that does not lead to spiritual death? It is the sin that you confess and repent of. Right? Isn't that what he says in chapter 1? You confess and repent. It doesn't gonna, ultimately, it won't lead to your spiritual death. You still have the hope of heaven. You can still have confidence in your relationship with Christ. God is faithful and just to forgive him in this situation, and it doesn't lead to his spiritual death because he's forgiven. But for the Christian, what is the sin that leads to our spiritual death? So we know the one that does not is the one we confess and repent of it. What is the sin that does lead to our spiritual death? That's obvious, isn't it? You do not confess... You do not repent of that sin, and it leads to your spiritual death. And John says, I do not say that we should make request for that. One writer, Woods, in his commentary puts it this way, The sin unto death is a disposition of the heart, a perverseness of attitude and an unwillingness of mind to acknowledge one's sin and from it turn away. Such a disposition effectively closes the door of heaven in one's face. Raise your hand if you've ever had a door slammed in your face. Anybody else had a door slammed in my face? I've I've had that happen to me a few times, uh, various degrees of animosity involved with that door slamming. But there's a big difference between someone slamming a door in your face and you pulling the handle and slamming the door in your own face. And for someone who refuses to repent and confess, when they know what it is that they have done wrong, they are the ones who are slamming the door in their own face. And this kind of attitude will not be forgiven by God. And we should not pray for God to do so. It is unforgivable because it reveals an attitude that will not seek forgiveness. Okay. A couple other passages we could consider. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Uh, as you study that on your own, we'll skip over these tonight. But as you study that on your own, here's what I want you to see. In every instance, there is a knowledge given and understood. It comes from the Holy Spirit. That knowledge is given by the Holy Spirit as it's revealed to the apostles and communicated to us, but people reject it. Uh, and in 2 Peter chapter 2, we find those who have known the way of righteousness, who turn from it, and it's worse for them because they knew, because they had it, and they lost it in their rebellion. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 26 through 31, uh, it says, For if we sin willfully, we know what we're doing after what? After we have received a knowledge of the truth. It is then that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Not that Jesus' blood isn't good enough all of a sudden, but if you intentionally and willfully are rejecting what God has given you, you have that knowledge and you choose to turn against it, don't expect to be saved some other way. This is the only way that salvation will come. And as Abraham said to the rich man in torments, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear if someone rises from the dead. This This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I know God's will. I understand God's will. But in hardness of heart, I reject God's will. Uh, Is there any application, uh, therefore, to us? I believe there is. Understanding the unforgivable sin does three things for us just by way of application. Number one, it highlights the role of the Holy Spirit in communicating God's will. Again, this was the primary role of the Holy Spirit... And some people want to minimize that in some way uh, in order to have the Holy Spirit doing a bunch of other things for us. But all that does is is minimize what it is that the Holy Spirit actually came to do with the apostles and prophets. And so we should see the highlighting of this role, how important it is uh, when it's contrasted with this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. This is the last passage to which we'll turn tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Uh, in verse 7 beginning. Y'all beat me to it. I was talking and y'all were turning. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 7. The Apostle Paul says this, "...but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." But as it is written I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But notice verse 10. God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes the deep things of God, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so no one knows the things of God except the spirit. Of God. Now we, that is Paul and the other apostles and inspired pro- prophets, have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. And so Paul, as the other writers did, highlights the importance of what the Holy Spirit was doing in communicating the will of God. And that will is now preserved for us that we might know it, that we might submit to it, and that we might do it. Secondly, understanding this unforgivable sin clarifies our attitude toward unrepentant sin. What should we pray? If there is someone who knows the truth but refuses to do it? Well, we can and we should pray that that attitude would change that God and His providence would work to bring it about, that they, might, that they might see the error of their ways, that their heart might be softened, that they ultimately might repent. But we are commanded that we should not pray that God would change His character and forgive those who have arrogantly and rebelliously sought no repentance. That's a tough thing, a difficult thing. But That's what's required of us. What is it that we are praying for? We're praying for hearts to soften so that they might repent. And then finally, number three, it emphasizes the vital need for confession, repentance, and baptism. For the one who is already a Christian, well, that's what we've read in 1 John 1 and 2. For the one who has not yet put Christ on in baptism, well, that's what we read at the end of Acts chapter 2 in verses 37 through 40. Either way, I hope you have seen tonight, and surely, it would be the last thing any of us would want, that someone would be guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But that's what it is if you know what you need to do and you're refusing to do it. Don't wait to do what you know you must do. Such an attitude can lead to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, a hardening of heart that ultimately refuses to repent even when we know that we should. Loved one, know. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have all worked to give you the opportunity, maybe even tonight, to come in humble repentance and confession that you might be baptized into Christ to walk in newness of life. Won't you take that opportunity now? And we encourage you to do so as together we stand. And as we sing, oh,